The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. I hope you're having a great day. We are having a great day, but we're going to have a better day with our guest today, who is Dr. Saley Shaywitz, the director of the Yale Center for Dyslexia and Creativity. You all know this is very important to me because I'm all about the employment of people with disabilities, and this is one area that we have frequently have an obstacle. Also, you know, as the chair of AAPD, that I'm on a mission to stop bullying. And sadly, this is one area where high school students with a learning disability have the brunt of bullying. So I know you're going to all enjoy the show, and I hope you'll pass it on to anyone that you think it will be helpful to. So welcome to the show, Dr. Sally Shaywitz from the Yale Center for Dyslexia and Creativity. Welcome to the show. What a pleasure to be here with you today, Joyce. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. So I thought we could begin by you telling our listeners the reason you became involved in the study of people living with dyslexia and other learning disabilities. Well, um, it's a pleasure to do that, uh, and it's a really straightforward story. I'm trained as a physician scientist. Uh, for the physician part, I'm a developmental pediatrician, and I began to see so many, many children with unexplained and unexpected reading difficulties, and what struck me so much was how destructive this was, both to the child and his or her parents, and by how little research at that time there was that I could call on to guide these distraught parents. And to give you the sense of the, the, the distraught nature, um, interns and residents who would be with me would say, you know, Dr. Shaywitz, it's, it's so interesting that parents cry in your clinic and in the oncology clinic. And, and I think that represented the fact that you know, when a child begins school, all our hopes and dreams of that child's future are, are sort of riding on, on how that child's going to be in, do in school. And for the children, they've been told that they're going to love learning to read. Oh, wait till you get to school. You're going to love reading. And then suddenly, unexpectedly, they see children all around them doing what they can do, read. And particularly in school when they're called on to read aloud, Children make fun of them or Twitter or titter, and the teachers accuse the child often of not trying hard enough. So this really struck me, and uh, of, of there was a huge need. And just to give you some sense of how prevalent this misunderstanding of dyslexia is, in my book, Overcoming Dyslexia, I write about the writer John Irving. 
And he relates how painful it was to him that he struggled with reading, but people didn't acknowledge how hard he was trying. And I'll just share a quote with you that's in the book. I interviewed John Irving, and this is what he told me. My only anger was at people who presumed that I was lazy when I was working harder than anyone else. I had at least one teacher each year who thought there was nothing the matter with me except that I was lazy. So still today, far too many children who are dyslexic are thought of incorrectly as being lazy or not trying hard enough or not being smart, both incorrect and destructive assumptions. So these kind of experiences touched me deeply and uh, my spouse and colleague, Dr. Benichewicz, and we determined that we must bring about positive change. First, we had to acquire the scientific knowledge to understand why otherwise bright and motivated children were struggling to learn to read, and then ensuring that this knowledge is translated into policy and practice. Wow, and I have a few questions about that. But first, we have a caller that sent us an email from Maine, and the caller is Linda. And here's the question. Dr. Shaywitz, thank you so much for what you're doing. We all need your help with our children in so many areas. What suggestions do you have for a child in first grade experiencing these problems? Okay. Well, that's a really important question, and I must say it's one I hear very often. I think if the child is experiencing these problems, the most important thing to do is to identify why, what the nature of the problems are. And I wish I could tell you that schools were in the forefront of identifying dyslexia. Um, Unfortunately, they're not. So what the parent needs to do is to find an evaluator who makes a diagnosis of dyslexia. Because once you have the diagnosis, it clears the air and there's understanding, and you know what the symptoms will be and what to do to effectively help the child. Because the one that really is suffering the most is the child because they can't understand, why can't I do this? And often teachers don't have the knowledge, unfortunately. So I would make sure that that child is identified and receives the help they need. And and two suggestions. One is uh, our Yale Center for Dyslexia and Creativity has a website, uh, www.yale.dyslexia.edu. And the other is many people have found my book, Overcoming Dyslexia, where I try to make the science accessible and then link that to help people be empowered to know what to do. Okay, now where do you go to get this book? Oh, uh, this book is the number one uh, trade book on dyslexia. Amazon uh, has it. Barnes & Noble has it. Uh, So it's called Overcoming Dyslexia. Overcoming Dyslexia. Wow. That is a great resource for so many people, I must say, including educators. Oh, my goodness. Well, what happens... In, 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 in a good way in a number of schools is that teachers use the book to, as a group reading session. So they all read it together, and then every week they discuss 
a topic that's been in the different chapters so that they can all be on the same page and can be informed because nobody wants to go into teaching because they want to make a million dollars. People go into teaching because they want to help children, but unfortunately, they don't have access often to the knowledge to identify and to effectively help dyslexic children in their classroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, I, the comment I also wanted to make that one statement that um, I, I forget if that was a student or who that was that said to you, I see stu- uh, parents crying in your office as I see them crying in the oncologist's office. That's right. Wow. Uh, Isn't and that it, a profound thing? Well, not only is it profound, but sadly, that statement was made over 25 years ago. It still oh. happens. Um, it's, over, it's overwhelming um, that the sci- in, many, um, Joyce, in many areas, the difficulty, and I'd say oncology is one of them, that we don't have the scientific knowledge. There's a gap. We need to. We need that knowledge. In the case of dyslexia, what's so frustrating is it's not a, gal- a knowledge gap. It's an action gap. We have mm. the knowledge, but it's not being used. It's not being put to use. It's not being implemented to help the children and adults who could benefit from it. Wow. Yeah, I for our listeners, I also wanted to point out, you know, when you said it's destructive, could you give a few examples of what you mean by that? Well, I think, as I said, children enter school wanting to learn to read. And then they're in a classroom, and they look around. Other children are able to read. Why can't I? Sometimes they have very supportive teachers. Other times they may not. So the child tends to begin to look at themselves and lose their self-concept. Oh, I guess I'm not so smart because nobody's diagnosed them. Nobody's explained to them that in the case of dyslexia, you can have a very high IQ but be a slow reader. So they begin to lose faith in themselves and they don't see themselves as a learner. So people who are dyslexic can go two different ways. One is they can work very, very hard, have some support, and really do extremely well if they have the accommodations. And we can talk about that in a moment. And we've done a study, for example, with dyslexic students at Yale, five years or more after they graduate compared to non-dyslexic students. And we found the outcomes were terrific. They, they have persistence, perseverance, intelligence, good thinking, or they can go in another direction, and the other direction is they they lose faith in themselves. They don't think of themselves as learners. They drop mm-hmm. out. They don't graduate. And mm-hmm. my husband and I just spoke to an ethics seminar at Yale, and, and what we shared with them is if that happens, if kids don't graduate high school, that affects their health. People who don't graduate high school are much, much, much more likely women to, to have a much higher mortality rate, uh, to have more teenage pregnancies, to be unemployed. And that's a life loss because these children have the potential, but we as a society haven't recognized it, haven't empowered them and their parents. So it becomes a real uh, loss of human capital for the child, his or her family, and for society. Oh, 
and that is so tragic. And I know you're right. I've seen that. But hopefully with the work you're doing, we can make progress here. But for someone listening to the show right now that does not understand dyslexia, could you explain that for a minute to our listeners? Yes, it would be my pleasure. Basically, dyslexia is an unexpected, that's the key word, unexpected difficulty in reading in a child or adult in relation to their intelligence, age, grade level, or professional status. You you could be a lawyer or a doctor and still dyslexic. Science has taught us that in dyslexia, the difficulty is not at all related to intelligence, not related to intelligence, but rather represents a difficulty getting to the sounds of spoken words. Let me explain. You see a word, a printed word on a page. In order to read that word, the child has to be able to connect the letter to its sound. So, for example, to read the word bat, we connect the letters B-A-T to the sounds B-A-T. And in this way, a beginning reader can learn how letters and sounds related and then use this knowledge to sound out unknown words. In the case of dyslexia, a person's unable to pull apart the spoken word into its separate individual sounds. And as a result, when the child sees a printed word, he's not able to link each letter to its corresponding individual sound. And it's important to appreciate that people who are dyslexic can eventually learn to compensate somewhat and read words accurately, but not automatically. As a result, reading in the brightest dyslexic remains slow and effortful. Typical readers, when they read, by the end of first grade, they see a word and they know it. It's automatic and it's pleasurable. It's not effortful. If you're dyslexic, you can learn to read the word, but it's always what I refer to as manual. You have to use all your attention, all your effort to try to figure out that word. You can do it, but it takes a lot of effort, and it's a very slow, effortful process. The other thing it's important to point out that dyslexia is a hidden disability, Um, not hidden to the child, (laughs) but hidden to others so the child's teacher often doesn't appreciate uh, how much effort he's putting in to read. And we have conceptualized dyslexia as a sea of strengths model in which there's a weakness in getting to the sounds of spoken word affecting reading, but at the same time, that weakness is surrounded by a sea of strengths in higher level functions like thinking and reasoning, analyzing. So the goal is to identify and remediate the weakness and at the same time to identify the strengths and provide access, most often through the provision of accommodations on tests, for example, extra time. It's also important for the readers, to, for your listeners to know that dyslexia doesn't only affect reading. Because of the difficulty getting to the sounds of spoken words, it affects the ability to quickly retrieve spoken words. So a dyslexic person may know what they want to say, but that might not be the word that comes out. It affects spelling and the ability to learn a foreign language. And I can, it's a paradox. And let me read you. We've made up uh, at our center a card because whenever I travel, you can't sit next to me without hearing about dyslexia. So now I give out this card, and it says, you may be dyslexic if you, and here we pair every weakness with the strength. So he, read slowly and with much effort are often the one to solve the problem. 
You can't spell, you have messy handwriting, but your writing shows terrific imagination. Many of our great writers happen to be dyslexic. You have trouble remembering dates and names, but you also think out of the box and grasp the big picture. And finally, you have difficulty retrieving and pronouncing spoken words, but you have an excellent vocabulary and ideas. So it shows you the weaknesses, but also the strengths. And that's why dyslexia is a paradox. Wow. Okay, well, to that point, we have a question from Ellen in Tennessee. Uh, Dr. Shaywitz, I want to know, what causes dyslexia? That's a really important question. We know at one level that it's a difficulty getting to the sounds of spoken words through our brain imaging studies, and our, I mean, a whole community of neuroscientists have found that in particular, there's uh, areas, re, uh, neural circuitry in the back of the left side of the brain that isn't working efficiently, that it doesn't allow the person to read automatically. Now, at the next level, people had once thought, oh, my goodness, we're going to find the gene for dyslexia, and we'll be able to take care of it. What science has shown us, whether it's depression, whether it's heart disease, whether it's dyslexia, these complex conditions are caused by a multitude of genes, many, many, many genes. And each gene accounts for a tiny bit of what's called the variance in, in, in the disorder. So I don't think it's going to be a productive thing to say we're going to find the gene. Uh, as science goes forward and uh, we, we and others carry out imaging studies and cognitive studies, hopefully we'll get deeper and deeper into why? And that's an important question. But at the same time, we know enough to do more to do better. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I want to ask you a question. I think I mentioned to you Karen Slaughter, who is a New York Times bestselling author. And I know many of my listeners today will know who she is because she's a mystery thriller writer. Now, there's a lead character, Will Trent, in her one series, and Will has dyslexia. And yet, he's the champion profiler, you know, solving crimes. And I was so impressed with this, I had to ask her what made her do that, and that what made her do that is her sister living with this disability. Now, in the book, it takes him a long time to let anyone know he has dyslexia. He has all little tricks. He does. So people do not know he has that, which leads me to the question, why do you think so many people are ashamed to talk about this, and how many people in the United States do you think live with dyslexia? Okay, um, uh, you're asking such good questions, and it's a pleasure for me to try to answer them. One, let me take the second um, about how common it is, how many people are living with it first. It's really quite common. It affects about one in five or 10 million children and adults. And what that means, focusing on children, every class has students who are dyslexic. Uh, what often happens, my husband and I visit um, schools very often, I'll say to the teacher, do you have a dyslex any dyslexic children? And they go, oh, no. And we think to ourselves, of course you do. You just haven't identified the children. It's also 
affects both boys and girls, men and women, and it doesn't go away. That's really, really important. It's lifelong. Why do people keep it a secret? Because there is a stigma. Many in our society incorrectly assume, well, if you're dyslexic and have trouble reading, you're not very bright. This is a very foolish and incorrect assumption. For example, in my book, I thought I was finished writing Overcoming Dyslexia, and then uh, my husband and I were lecturing at a university, and one of the people there said, well, what do you think about those people, those dyslexics? They want to be doctors and lawyers, etc." Can you imagine a person like that? Well, I could. So what I did was, even though I couldn't wait for my book to be finished, I added a section called the epilogue, and I titled it A Person Like That. Mm. And in that epilogue, I wrote about many men and women who are dyslexic who have contributed magnificently in law. David Boyes, can you imagine? He's very dyslexic, and I think the Supreme Court is soon going to rule on his, uh, the case uh, that he and uh, Tom Olson have done on same-sex marriage. Uh, Dr. Toby Cosgrove, who's probably the premier cardiac surgeon in the world and now CEO of the Cleveland Clinic, also dyslexic. I don't know if you remember playwright Wendy Wasserstein, uh, right. who won just about every award, was very dyslexic. Charles Schwab, the financier, is brilliant and dyslexic. And Carol Greider, who is dyslexic and was rejected, I forget, by, from 10 or 10 of the 12 graduate programs uh, she applied to because she didn't do well on her graduate record exam. Well, two schools were smart enough to accept her, and you know why? She went on to win a Nobel Prize in medicine. So you, people just don't understand that, that connection. And I'll just share something else with you, uh, a study that we carried out that I'm very, very proud of is we, I, I direct a study called the Connecticut Longitudinal Study that's <clears throat> been going on um, for many years, and we followed a, a, a sample survey of children from the time they were five, currently they're in their 30s. But the point I want to make is that we gave these children IQ tests and reading tests. So what we did is we wanted to say, well, what's the relation of intelligence and reading in typical readers, readers who aren't dyslexic? And what we found there is just what everybody thinks. Uh, Intelligence and reading were dynamically linked. They were kissing cousins. They traveled together over time, and they influenced each other. So it, it went with what people think. Well, if you're smart, you'll read well. If you read well, you're smart. But we did something else. We also had a large group of students who were dyslexic, and we looked at the relationship between intelligence and reading in people who were dyslexic. And you know what we found? Something totally different. Reading and IQ were not related. They weren't even talking to one another. And what we found was that you could have a very high IQ and a much lower reading level. So this validates dyslexia as an unexpected difficulty where you can have high intelligence but still struggle uh, with reading. And you know what? Any young person listening to this show right now with dyslexia, I hope you're listening because as you see and I frequently tell you, when people call you names, it's just they don't know what they're talking about. That's exactly Um, right. They do not. 
Um, and Dr. Shaywitz, I'm very excited. You've done a lot of research in this area. What have you done? What could you talk about? Okay. My research has had several components. One is the study I just mentioned, the Connecticut Longitudinal Study of Learning. And my husband and I began that because there was no data. Uh, there was data on children who had been identified by schools or clinics, but there was no data. What about children who were never identified? So this was uh, virtually a random sample of Connecticut school children. And we've been able, through the study, to um, determine uh, key data on the prevalence, how many people are dyslexic, does it affect boys or girls, the answer is both, it's persistence. And now we're so excited because we're able to address issues relating to what are the earliest predictors of both risk and resilience, as well as the economic, social, and health consequences of dyslexia. We're very, very excited about that. Another component, led by Dr. Bennett Shewitz, has examined what happens in the brain, the neurobiologic basis of reading and dyslexia, and has identified, as he says, the neural signature of dyslexia. There's a, you see a specific pattern when you do functional magnetic resonance imaging on people who are dyslexic compared to those who are not. So this has taken a hidden disability and made it visible. There's no doubt of the, either the reality or validity of dyslexia. And currently, we're examining the role of attention in reading and dyslexia and the potential role of uh, specific medications, perhaps, as an adjunct in addressing reading difficulties. Wow. Well, that that is so interesting. With all of that you've done, what has really amazed you the most? Well... I think the finding of the universality of dyslexia. Dyslexia affects individuals of every ethnic group, race, geographic, location, and language. It's everywhere. And I was so surprised when I wrote my book, for example, people think, well, dyslexia is a problem in alphabetic languages. But overcoming dyslexia has been translated into Chinese, Japanese, Korean, among others. So it's in every language. There are dyslexic people. That's one thing. Uh, and the unexpected nature to have proof that you can have high intelligence and still read poorly. So it's not only a dyslexic child's mother telling them this. It's hard scientific data. We've also been very excited about the results of our Yale Outcome Study, where we've shown if you take bright dyslexic students and provide uh, support and accommodations, they can just sparkle. They can have very, very, very positive outcomes, as they have in our study and at Yale. Well, I went, before I ask you this next question about stigma, I'm going to read this question to you from Lucy in Kansas. And the question is, Dr. Shaywitz, what do you do when a teacher does not understand your child has dyslexia? That's a really big problem um, because there are many, many teachers that don't understand dyslexia. Uh, I, you know, there, I would start with the teacher trying to educate that teacher and give them a copy of Overcoming Dyslexia. I talk to them about it. I would also talk to someone 
at the school, if there's a school psychologist or a learning disability specialist, to make sure that they explain that to the teacher. If the teacher doesn't understand that, that child should not be in that class because that teacher will not understand the nature of the paradox of dyslexia. That teacher will not understand how to approach the child, how to provide evidence-based reading instruction, and also confuse some errors of a child misreads when they're reading out loud or doesn't spell well. They'll confuse that as a problem in intelligence. So not only will the child not receive effective evidence-based instruction so that they could learn, but they'll be blamed or made fun of or ostracized for the struggles they have. And at the, at what we always have to keep in mind is the child, the child's sense of him or herself. Because of all the things we talk about, the child's self-concept is the most critical and which will carry him or her through life. Right. Oh, without that, you are not going to make it, especially in this situation. We do have one of my uh, young men that works in our corporate office, and when he was in college and high school, he had a very difficult time because of what you said. His teachers thought he was lazy. Uh, Why did he need this extra time? They did not understand a learning disability in any way, shape, or form, um, and he was living with dysgraphia. Oh, and that's often part of dyslexia. People Pardon who, me? I'm, dysgraphia is often part of dyslexia. People who are dyslexic often have difficulties with handwriting, and, and it becomes very important for those children to be able to be allowed to type because they don't have problems with keyboarding, but they do have problems with handwriting. Well, we got to do something about this. Well, I mean, we really have to do something about this because I have too many young people dealing with this, living with this, being put down by this, and that is a question. You know, just as I said about, actually, his name is Gerald. His teacher made fun of him, said he was lazy just did not understand this in any way, shape, or form, as you alluded to earlier. Now, what about the stigma? What are we going to do about that? Because the young high school students that I mentor at the Bender Leadership Academy, many of them have a learning disability, and many of them have dyslexia. And the reason they are really bullied and made fun of is because of this stigma that's attached. But this is with adults also. You know, many adults, I mean, if they would deal with this, it isn't that they are of low intellect, as you said. It's that they need an accommodation. They, You know, they need help. Do you have any suggestions at all about what we need to do with this stigma? Okay, there, there's a number of it. One, one I should share with you is that our center, the Yale Center for Dyslexia and Creativity, is um, going to be uh, starting an initiative uh, to, uh, for public awareness because it's incredible. This is one of the most common problems affecting children and adults, and it's not only poorly understood, people have the opposite idea. Oh, if you're dyslexic, you're not very smart which couldn't Mm -hmm. be farther from the truth. And we actually have a logo, got dyslexia, you're in good company. Hmm. 
so that people can understand that they're not alone. They have many, many others um, who are like them. And it's very important because one of the problems is if children and adults aren't identified, they're isolated. It's important to know you're part of the community, and then you meet the community and say, oh, I'm happy to be part of that group. So that's one thing. The other is that there is now a bipartisan dyslexia caucus in Congress. Um, and we've worked very closely with this wonderful group. A couple of years ago, uh, Dr. Bennett and I, uh, Shaywitz and I, spoke at the Congressional Wives Club, and many, many congressional spouses came, and they realized that they had in common, even if their political beliefs were very far apart, they had in common a child who was dyslexic. So uh, Representative and also Dr. Bill Cassidy, uh, Republican of Louisiana, and Representative Pete Stark of California got together, put their political differences aside, and formed the caucus. Currently, uh, Julia Brownlee of California, who's a Democrat, shares the co-chairmanship with uh, Representative Cassidy. And their goal is to give a voice to the children and, uh, who are dyslexic and to their parents. So we think that's a really important step in the right direction. We need to have legislation so that teachers can say, or schools, oh, we don't believe in dyslexia. My response to that is in the case of religion, you could choose to believe or not believe. But in the case of dyslexia that's supported by hard science, it's a fact, and schools have to acknowledge it, have to identify it, and provide evidence-based interventions and accommodations for it. You know, Dr. Shavitz, when I speak to the students with dyslexia or some type of learning disability, I often, you know, I'll say to them, Learning disability does not mean you're stupid. Learning disability means you learn differently. And when I say that to them, I can't believe how, like, there's this big relief smile on their face because they themselves believe they're of low intellect. Well, that's the worst thing we do to these children. Yeah. That's the worst thing. And, uh, for example, what I do when we evaluate a child, I always sit down with that child and talk about not only their weakness but their strengths, and often they're so amazed. You mean, I'm smart? Yeah. Oh, yes, I know. You really are. I know that they are. I know they're amazed because when I tell them this, I mean, they, they really think that there is something wrong. But that, but that tells you we have a national problem of enormous proportions. People are talking about, oh, the problem with schools, it's the teachers, it's this, it's that. It's that they have no idea of what dyslexia is. And that's affecting 20%, one in five. That has to be acknowledged. It has to be identified. It has to be accommodated. People have to get uh, there's evidence, real scientific evidence of what works, and children are not receiving that. It's it's really uh, an incredible thing, and the goal of my uh, my husband, Dr. Benichitz, and myself and our Yale Center for Dyslexia and Creativity is to make sure that changes. And I'll share with you one of our newest initiatives, and it's called the Multicultural Dyslexia Awareness initiative, what I find 
very troubling is that in communities of color and in Latino communities um, and often uh, communities of disadvantage, if you think dyslexia is not identified in other communities, it's barely ever identified in these communities. So we're uh, creating uh, a whole initiative to increase awareness of dyslexia in these populations because often the children are not identified if they struggle. They say, well, what do you expect? You know, it, it's such a bias. And in adults often who are of color or Latino, they're dyslexic. But they're ashamed. They're ashamed to share that because they feel, well, oh, I'm a person of color, and now dyslexia. Oh my goodness, what will people think? So we're really having a major outreach. And in fact, on August 4th at Yale, we are having our first uh, convening of our initiative. And the president of Yale, um, Professor Peter Salovey, will be speaking. Um, what's his name? Who's going to? That's awesome. Harry Belafonte, who's dyslexic. Wow. Uh, and uh, lots of other uh, very prominent Latinos. Uh, there's a man named Victor Villasenor, who's very, very dyslexic, uh, couldn't read, and taught himself to read and has now written wonderful books, one of which was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. So we're trying to reach into communities that people... You know, it's everywhere, but people deny it, ignore it, and we're trying to put a stop to that. You know what is amazing to me? You know when you're talking about the multicultural studies. Now, there's where, as all my listeners know, the majority know I'm living with epilepsy, and that is very similar. Is that, that right? And, yeah, they do not want, they'll hide that. They don't want anyone to know because of the stigma that is attached. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and so... The goal is to get rid of the stigma, and, mm-hmm. and knowledge is the power to do that. I mean, we know, we know enough. We know that people with dyslexic may be slow readers, but they're often fast and out-of-the-box thinkers. And we have to make sure people are aware of both, the difficulties so we can remediate and accommodate them, but also the strengths. So I must tell you, Dr. Shaywitz, what I love about you and what I know is going to make a difference in America for those of us living with all types of disabilities, including dyslexia, is your passion and excitement. I mean, you can just hear it when you're you know, on this radio show, your, your passion, your enthusiasm. And as I'm on a crusade for employment, you're on this crusade, and of course they go hand in hand, because just as you indicated earlier in the show, uh, people drop out of school, you know, they, and then all these other problems go right along with that, and it all, so much of it is related to two things, lack of understanding and low self-esteem. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, I'm glad you're out there fighting for us. But we're trying, and um, hopefully um, we'll work together. Yes, and we will. Be able to actually make even more progress. Well, if you do have this dyslexia and you and you figure that out at school or when you get employment, um because oh how many people have I met that in uh the university or college were not doing well and then 
discovered they had this diagnosis of dyslexia and got the accommodations and all of a sudden they're doing well. So what accommodations are there for people living with dyslexia? Okay, first of all, uh, you're asking the best questions ever. Uh, I, I think it's really important for people to know the accommodations isn't a perk. It's not getting away with something. It's really reconciling the the paradox of dyslexia. And that's what accommodations mean, reconcile. You have these higher-level cognitive strengths, but you also have the weaknesses in reading quickly and handwriting and spelling in word retrieval. So what an accommodation does is try to level the playing field. And what's really important is that we now have scientific uh, knowledge our neuroimaging findings, for example, show that the area of the brain that supports fast, efficient reading, automatic reading, just isn't working efficiently. So no matter how smart you are, you're not going to be able to be a fast reader. So in terms of accommodations, extra time. People who are dyslexic are robbed of time. Accommodation of extra time returns it. And also, just to share with you, and I'm sure many of your listeners who have been listening to your program appreciate this, accommodations are so often misunderstood. People think, oh, they want a perk, they want a special privilege. The vast, vast majority of people I see, they would rather not have an accommodation. Yeah, right. They want to be part of the group. They don't want to be the child who the teachers are, oh, yes, Joni, you're the one that gets extra. You go over there. The children cringe. They don't want to do that. Or as one uh, student here at Yale told me, well, if I ask for extra time, people will think either I'm not so smart or I'm trying to game the system. So Yeah, I know. I, too, have heard people say that. Yeah. I have heard people say, when I talk about this, well, Joyce, do you think it's fair that they get extra time for their test? And let me answer that. There have been studies that have shown that if you're dyslexic and you have extra time, your scores really go up substantially because the test becomes a measure of your ability and not your disability. If you're not dyslexic and you have extra time, you may go up a few points or you may go down a few points because you have more time than you need. And you know what happens then? You change a correct answer to an incorrect answer. Mm-hmm. So, Well, people- would you say that someone who uses a wheelchair is just trying to get to a meeting or get in line in front of someone uh, faster than other people? Would you say... That, I mean, you know, video relay, people who are deaf, are are they getting that because they want some advantage? The problem is people will look at a service dog, a wheelchair, video relay, and they see that as a necessary accommodation. Even employers that I work with, they'll say, what accommodations will they need? Just let me know. But if the person has a learning disability... And they're at work, and they would even try to say, even if it's could I start earlier, could I work through lunch, to accommodate for this. The employer will say to me, we can't keep them. Yeah, it's not because spiritual. they don't understand the nature of dyslexia. They don't understand that the same person that's working so hard, but albeit slowly, 
is a person who thinks out of the box. I mean, let me tell you, if I was a law firm, I would want to have David Boyce <laughs> as my employee. And that's what they, they have to understand. I've met so many attorneys, for example, who are dyslexic, and they tell me because they read slowly, they pick up things that others don't, or they see the big picture. Physicians um, are, are terrific. Uh, the woman who is in charge of our pediatric emergency room, an emergency room physician, uh, you know, she always says, I can't read quickly, but I can think quickly. Because some people say, I wouldn't want to come into an emergency room when there's a doctor who can read quickly. And my Uh response to that is, if you come in in cardiac arrest and your doctor has to run and read about your problem, you've lost already. You need to have someone who has the expertise and can use that expertise and can Uh think quickly. Uh Yes, that is. And as you said earlier, one of the classic, uh, you know, modern novels has to be the world according to Garp. That's right. So, you know, here's John Irving. You could say that, that, you know, you didn't want him in some situation because of this. But I'm telling you, Dr. Shaywitz, that's a hard one to teach employers because they always see it as they just want extra time to do their job. It isn't fair to the other employees. I mean, I have still not been able to get to get that. Well, I have you know not what? been able to break that one. Well, we're going to work together, and we're going to do something about that. Because what the employers have to understand, they're hurting their business by not doing that. Mm-hmm. It's in their best yeah, interest. Yeah, what would be great, and we will do this together, is we can put together some type of presentation uh, so that when I explain this to uh, employers, they know, because that, as I said, that is very, very, very difficult. Sadly, once again, it's due to lack of understanding. Well, but, well that's it. It's ignorance. And uh, as I said earlier, it sometimes it's frustrating. We say, if only we had the science. In the case of dyslexia, we have the science, but we're ignoring it. We're not using it. That's, that's worse than not having the science. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, what do you have to say to students that are being brutally bullied? You know, you gave the perfect description before, is that I will say um, that, you know, they'll tell me I'm spit on, I'm excluded, I'm not invited to events, and I'll say why. Well, I have to leave to go to another class because of my learning disability. And immediately, you're stupid, you're dumb, you're really stupid. And once you get labeled with this, all of a sudden the kids think, what a weirdo. I'm not going to associate with them. And I can't begin to tell you how many times I hear this story. I mean, I've been doing this volunteer work with high school students with disabilities for over 12 years, and I'm going to tell you every single uh, leadership Academy, I hear that story. Well, it, 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 it happens just, I hear it too, it happens far too often, and I think this is a multi-layered, uh, multi-leveled problem that we have to have teachers, parents, and the students all having a role. For teachers, you know, the teacher is the leader of the class and sets the tone. 
So that teacher has to know about dyslexia, be able to un- identify it and understand the symptoms so that they don't have a role in stigmatizing the child. For example, calling him on him or her to read aloud or somehow accusing the child of not being bright or not trying hard enough. The parents, you know, it's, it's so interesting. I've met so many children, and I was at a wonderful event at the Park Century School in Los Angeles, the School for Dyslexic Children. Um, and, uh, not too long ago, and uh, there were people who had gone to Park Century School years and years ago and who came up to speak, and you know what they talked about? Their mothers. How really? their mothers... Oh, I'm sorry? That's something. The mothers who had championed them, the mothers who stood behind them and and supported them no matter what. And it's, it's so it's, the mothers... The parents, but it often is the mother, their support for the child, ensuring that that child, as I think the caller for Maine asked, is, in, is diagnosed properly and understands the nature of his difficulty in overcoming dyslexia. I have a chapter called Protecting and Nourishing Your Child's Soul. You oh, to, well, you know I'm going to be telling everyone to get this book. It, it, I, you know, it, I don't want to sound like it, it is my book, but everywhere I go, I, people tell me how much this book has meant to them and opened their eyes. And, and so I'm, I'm just going to continue. If we, a parent has to make sure that the school is not being punitive to the child so that they confuse slow reading with not being able to succeed, for example, in an honors class. the child I've heard so many children have the cognitive ability to take honors math or honors history, but they, the teachers think because the child reads slowly, they think slowly, so they keep them down. Or uh, if a child needs extra help, they pull the child out of a favorite class or an enjoyable activity. But most important is for the child to understand the nature of his dyslexia or her dyslexia at an age-appropriate level. So, and this is what I recommend in overcoming dyslexia. Find an activity, it's sports or music, whatever it is, something that child enjoys and can feel good about. Because sometimes as parents, we so badly want to fix the child that we devote 24 hours a day to remediation. There has to be time for the child to discover him or herself. For example, in overcoming dyslexia, I write about John Irving, and he said when he was in school, you know what got him through? Uh He was an excellent wrestler. Yeah, right. And to this isn't that something because that's in his books. That is interesting. And to this day and age, when we visited him at his home, guess what he has? A wrestling ring. Charles Schwab is a terrific golfer. You have to have something that represents the other part of you that you can succeed in. Well, the person in my office with dysgraphia, which I never knew that was part of dyslexia, is one of the best employees I have for thinking outside the box and being innovative. Exactly, exactly. And we have to make sure, and I I have to tell you, even though there are companies that don't want to hire people with dyslexic, I will bet you that a surprising large percentage of the CEOs are dyslexic. Oh, yes. It's like epilepsy. Uh, Many people have this. They just don't tell anyone. Exactly. And we're going to change that, Joyce. Yes, we are. We are going to change that. 
Um, and trust me, with you, I'm connected to you. I'm I can tell you are the real deal. <laughs> so with, with that, Dr. Shaywitz, you have already accomplished so many great things. I mean, here you are, director at Yale, author, speaker, researcher. But if you had to say what you believe was your greatest accomplishment so far in your life, what would you say? Well, I have to say there are several. First and foremost, I have to say my extraordinary children, who are really wise and caring and compassionate beyond words. I think also the ability to be able to work to bring science and policy and practice together, because as a scientist and as a physician, my responsibility isn't just to do research and create new knowledge. The responsibility is to create that knowledge so it can be used to better the life of others. I also am very proud of overcoming dyslexia because so many people have told me how useful and helpful and life-changing. They, they actually, it's not my word, but call it their Bible. They say, I look to that to help me. It's on my nightstand. <clears throat> and finally, I'm very proud of being the Audrey G. Ratner Professor in Learning Disability at Yale. Audrey Ratner was, is a woman, a wonderful woman, who understood reading and dyslexia and the importance of appropriate evidence-based instruction many, many years ago and worked to try to help others understand. So it's an inspiration to me that I carry the name Audrey G. Ratner Professor. Wow. Well, Dr. Shaywitz, if you had to leave a message with our listeners today before we close the show, what would it be? Well, I think it's to know that dyslexia is real, and along with the weakness in reading, there are associated many higher levels of strength, and there is a light at the end of the tunnel. I, I think uh, I would encourage your listeners, for example, to contact the bipartisan dyslexia caucus so that they have a voice to call either Representative uh, Bill Cassidy of Louisiana or Representative Julia Bronley of California. Today, too many children remain invisible, their potential lost, and they're hurt, and it hurts everyone in our society. There must be a change in our educational system so that these children's futures are fulfilled, and in our society so people if they understood dyslexia, they'd want to hire people who are <clears throat> dyslexic. That's oh, right. my goodness. You're the one who can think. You're the one who can solve problems. Wow, I want you. I, you know what? Wouldn't that be great? And you know what? I hate to end this show. <clears throat> That's why I'll have to have you back on. <clears throat> but we went end every show with a quote from someone that has changed life. And the quote today is once we accept our limits, we go beyond them, said ah. Albert Einstein. And, and that, I, that is what it is all about. Can I have one more word? Yes. I'm a graduate of the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and had to give a talk, um, uh, I, I forget, for a special occasion. So I read about Albert Einstein. He was dyslexic. I know. And often I don't like to invoke people who have passed on because we can't prove it, but I read about him thoroughly. And if anyone we know thought of outside the box and has changed the world, it's Albert Einstein. 
Yes, he did. And so are you. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Talk to you next week. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.